Welcome to the Advanced Persistent Security Podcast, where we discuss the world of IT and cybersecurity. Don't be left in the dark about what's going on in the world around you. Here is your host, Joe Gray. Hi, as the introduction said, I'm Joe Gray. Here with me today is Leighton Johnson. He is the CTO of ISFMT, the Information Security Forensics Management Team out of Augusta, Georgia. They provide consulting for forensics as well as certification training, and they have presented classes and seminars all across the United States, Japan, and Europe. Leighton has over 40 years' experience in security, software development, and various other disciplines within the cybersecurity realm. He holds the CISM, the CISA, the CISSP, the CSSLP, and the C-RISC certifications. He has been a regional CIO and senior security engineer within Lockheed Martin and has taught various courses at Augusta State University. He has presented at various conferences, including InfoSec World and the Cybercrime Summit. Leighton, have I missed anything? Um, recently, I've been uh, doing a lot of work with CAP for governmental agencies looking at the risk management framework mechanism for the government processes uh, from a cyber security and information security perspective. So I'm also a holder of CAP and teach that around the world, literally. The last time I taught it, I was in Spain. That's definitely my wheelhouse. I've been working on uh, the government CNA and now the authorization uh, process for about six years now. So that's definitely where I got my uh, feet wet. I can tell you it's a very... uh, Interesting field, to say the least. Yes, and actually it's more dynamic than you would think, even with all the processes and procedures that are all defined by this and everything. It is relatively dynamic, especially the fact that now all of the government has lined up under one format. Um, right. Yeah, the IC, DOD, everybody's now using the risk framework. So it has changed a lot in the last 24 months since that process started. And it's one of the big changes that I actually get behind because one of the biggest things that I didn't care for when I worked under DIACAP, which, I mean, many people called the DIACRAP, yeah. rightfully so, there was just no no reciprocity with them. Sure, people had maps that mapped the controls back and forth, but they weren't really – it wasn't truly reciprocal. Mm-hmm. And what I like about the NIST framework now is it's actually based off ISO 27000, which means that it's – even more universal than it was for uh, the DOD before. Well, yeah, and I'm sure that the big advantage of that is the fact that, of course, this sits on the ISO board, so they, you know, as part of that process, they lined everything up ahead of time just to make sure. Exactly. And, I mean, the beautiful thing with that is it actually opens more doors for people who have been working in the federal sector in terms of risk management and it actually opens up the door for the federal government to bring people outsiders in that are already familiar with the framework. Yeah. Because in the past, as soon as someone found out, oh, they worked for the Department of Defense, we don't want them because they're so used to that framework mm-hmm. and so rigid. Now, I mean, everybody uses – I'm not going to say everybody, but a lot of people use NIST. Right, and, and so, so it's gotten a lot better. Um, I'm actually working on a class in two weeks where I'll be teaching some uh, military folks – um, uh, the risk management framework construct so that they can shift from DIACAP over to this. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, that the risk management framework's been out for two years now. It's 
it's wild that organizations are still on die cap, but it's um, not surprising either. Well, when DOD implemented it two years ago, they put a framework in. When they did it, telling them it was going to take them three and a half years to get there anyway um, because they had to work through the whole ATO cycle before right. everything. And, you know, DOD has, you know, a hundred times more systems than any other agency out there that they would have to switch to on top of that. So, And that, def- that definitely makes sense. Are you ready to hit some current events? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so in terms of current events for this episode, we've got four. We'll kind of touch on them a little bit, some more than others. So uh, we can start out with Spotify. They were allegedly mm-hmm. hacked again. What gives? <laughs> uh, I think they're just trying to cover their tracks. I think that they did. Uh, actually, probably um, with what I've seen, uh, with data showing up and passwords showing up for user accounts and those types of things on other sites, um, after their issue from last year, or whatever it was, I think that they probably did get a problem. Uh, just given the fact that it wasn't a vast array of information, I just sort of suspect that it was some sort of compromised admin account issue again. That that definitely seems very plausible because based on the information that I've seen, uh, my one of my sources being Naked Security by Sophos, they were saying that it was only in, in, instead of thousands of accounts, it was hundreds of accounts. Right. And on Pastebin, which would indicate that, yes, someone did take over an admin account, but as a positive, their incident response process picked Mm -hmm. up, and they were able to contain the issue and prevent it from becoming widespread. Right. I think that that's more what I think is is followed that happened on their side, is that they're more involved in uh, this just being a, a controlled issue that they caught it in process possibly or that whatever was done, whether it was a removal of a particular server's file or something like that, it, it was contained. Right. But nonetheless, and they still had a problem, which would did. indicate that the full scope of the lessons learned from the last time that they went through this probably wasn't fully implemented for whatever reason. Well, it has been two years, but nonetheless, in in the statement from Spotify, they actually said that they actively monitored websites like Pastebin for their information, Mm -hmm. and they believed that anything that popped up was actually from the data breach in, I believe, uh, either February 2014. I I think that was the date. But either way, they they had had several breaches, and in doing so, they believe it was residual data from a past breach that showed up. So they're kind of kind of doing their PR damage control, if you will. But honestly, here's the biggest problem I see with this. And this is something that I preach and preach and preach. I I evangelize this to no end. I I say it until I'm blue in the face. I regain the color of my face, and I say it until (laughs) I'm blue in the face again. The problem that comes with this is user password reuse. Oh, So, So even if... It's 100 users or 1,000 users and whatever. The problem that comes with this, users use the same password everywhere. So when sites like this get compromised, it definitely creates a, an added level of 
complication for the user, and that's it, it creates a good time to say to have that discussion with management about using password management software. I used to be adamantly against it, but honestly, now I'm I'm really not so opposed to it. Some software like One Password by Agile Bits, you know, you have a key, it's in a file, it's encrypted, uh, su- supposedly to uh, 256 bit AES encryption, right. and uh, with it, you have one master password, and then you create passwords of whatever complexity you want for whatever website or application you want. So if you want to have non-human readable 24-character passwords with all four typefaces in it, it will let you, and you don't have to worry about memorizing it. You just have to know that one master password and have a good password management cycle for that to change that password every 30, 60, or 90 days. Yeah, that's where it comes in, and you just got to – well, of course, people who would uh, utilize that project, that particular product or something along those lines are going to be relatively – familiar with the criteria that they have to fit anyway uh, as far as cycles of passwords, as far as protecting their master password, those types of mechanisms to start with. Um, you know, it goes along with one of the things that we're going to be talking about tonight anyway with the ICAM scenario in the cloud, which is issue number two. So the whole idea about uh, authentication and reuse of password and the whole mechanism and starting to work to control passwords for users and understand that we're headed towards, um, at least in some arenas and some of the industries, using non-human generated password mechanisms, uh, token-based mechanisms, um, biometric-based mechanisms. They're all advances that we need because, of course, the password issue has been there since day one in the computing world anyway. And we have to understand that, you know, the human factors picture that fits in with uh, memorization of passwords and all those types of things. I mean, that's why we see this incredible proliferation of everybody using the same password, you know, across multiple areas is because it's something that they can remember. Um, Exactly. Um, and we have struggled with that for 40 years in this industry anyway. Um, so we need to work on using those types of mechanisms to let the technology assist the people side of our scenario that we have to work with in security to make sure that it, you know, let it do what it can do for us. Exactly. And, I mean, two-factor authentication is always some uh, another option as well, but the problem that comes with that is it's difficult to get the users to buy in on it. Even though the decision is already made by management, users will be reluctant to two-factor authentication, even using something like Google Authenticator. Mm-hmm. Or so. using, you know, I mean, I'm surprised that the 2FA scenario with mobile phones hasn't really caught on. It's there. I mean, I've certainly used it myself to reset activities when I needed to with mine, but it it really hasn't caught on. I haven't heard a whole lot of really heavy usages from that, which, of course, is the two-factor authentication using the the texting coming from source like Google or Microsoft or whomever. I think a lot of that is management 
sees it as a cost center. It's the traditional security sure. argument. Right. And especially senior management, they already don't want to use a password. They already don't think they need a password because they've got a shutting locking office. You know, I remember back in the 1990s when I was the security manager for a large retail organization. My boss, CEO, came in and asked me to set a system in where he could log in once, i.e. a single sign-on mechanism, but he only wanted it six characters because that was the name of his dog. So he could remember that. You know, those types of scenarios. Exactly. And, And even back then, you know... 15 years ago, 20 years ago, it was that way, and we're still struggling with the same issues today. We've got to let the technology assist us where it can um, as it advances, because clearly the biometric world is advancing dramatically over the last three, four years as part of these processes with all the different types of mechanisms for biometrics and those types of things, and being able to purchase mobile devices and computing devices that already have biometric mechanisms built into them to start with. We, we really need to let the technology assist it where, where it can to slow the other side down to give us a better sense of the security because that's all a matter of confidence and trust anyway, as it is. And so we got to look at how password usage Password policy mechanisms are supported at the senior part of the organization as well as throughout the organization. Exactly. And I'll I'll sum this one up with if you do use Spotify and you think that you may have been compromised or if you just want to check and see if you've been compromised anywhere, you can check out haveibeenpwned.com. It is basically have I been owned, but instead of an O, it's a P, dot com. I'll put it in the show notes if you want to check. Come to find out, I was actually breached in 2013 to the Adobe oh. password breach. I didn't know until I, I was never notified by Adobe until I checked haveibeenpwned.com. Oh, well. Unfortunately, I happen to live in the state of South Carolina, so I got a history. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Department of Revenue hit from two years ago. So that one I know about. You know, that kind of thing. But, yeah, that's a good place to go. Um, There's lots of these tools that are out there that we can always check on our own data. You know, every state has its own identity theft issues, so we always got to check for ourselves. There's no national clearinghouse for this uh, from from that perspective. We need to do it on our own for our own sake. That's 100% true. And not every state can be like California in terms of California State Bill 1386. Yeah, right. Generally speaking, I'm not a huge fan of anything the state of California does, and a lot of times I think they do things wrong uh, or, or a way that I wouldn't do it, but that's one thing that they did 100% correct. Yes. So moving on, there's uh, been a little bit of ransomware that's infected Android, but don't worry, Google fans. It's only for Android older than 4.4, so Jelly Bean. Mm-hmm. Basically, it... Infected phones using hostile JavaScript ads. They were malicious in nature. They were coming across ad networks. The uh, unsuspecting person goes through. They see the ad. Uh, They may click the ad. They may not. And then at that point, the exploit uh, attacks them. Mm -hmm. The exploit itself was actually leaked uh, after the hacking team data breach. 
So it doesn't appear as if it's affecting Kit Kat, Lollipop, or Marshmallow. Man, now that I'm diabetic, those all sound tasty. <laughs> that's that's why I'm a, I'm an iPhone guy, purely. Yeah. <laughs> There, there are no longer updates for Jelly Bean, so if you are running Android 4.0 to 4.3, you probably want to get a new device and at least go to 4.4, if not 5 or 6. Right. 5 and 6 do seem to be immune to it. It's like any other operating system. You, need, you might not like the new one, i.e. Windows 8, but you probably want to upgrade past Windows XP or Vista because they're no longer supported. Right. Please but, get to Windows uh, 7. <laughs> at least. At least. So it doesn't encrypt the files like most ransomware. It basically just changes permissions so you can't get in. And if you do get infected, you could just get a new device if you can. But ultimately what it boils down to is you need to evaluate the data that's on your phone. Can you live without it? What value of it is it to you? Do you have a backup somewhere else that you can restore from? If if it's not going to put you into an, an extremist position, I would say just chuck it and get a new device. Yeah, rule number one is dealing with ransomware. Make sure your backup system is correct and working. You know, it always. You know, you know, even more so than with pretty much anything else that comes in from that world is is deal with the backups, you know. I mean, that's always been a redundancy resiliency issue, but in this case, it's really, you know, uh, taking that availability step that really needs to be taken uh, for your own devices as part of those processes. You know, most of the computing world has dealt with that a lot, but only when it's individualized from a file perspective um, as far as recovering files or something like that. Uh, when something is broken or the files get inadvertently deleted. But, of course, the whole proliferation of ransomware in the last 24 months, starting with CryptoWall and moving forward since then, a couple of years ago, has just dramatically changed everything as far as that whole scenario. Exactly, because you have, you know, you had CryptoWall. Now you've got CryptoLocker, CryptoXXX, yeah. and Locky. It's like, okay... But with the whole backup thing, I want to I want to bring in a, a joke here that it's one of those I'm kidding but I'm not kidding jokes. It's it's called Schrodinger's backup. We all know about Schrodinger's cat. Schrodinger had a backup too. Schrodinger's backup is the condition of any backup is unknown until a restore is attempted. <laughs> True enough. So so with that, yeah, I mean everybody should be doing backups. Everybody should be checking the boxes. But more importantly, you should be testing these backups. You should be oh, restoring yeah. from backup periodically. This is completely off topic with this. This is more in the social engineering and phishing world. But Mattel, as a company, I heard it in another podcast. I think it was the Defensive Security Podcast. It very well may have been Paul's Security Weekly. But it was in one of those two. And the problem was Mattel had just got a new CEO and – Someone spoofed this uh, an email from the CEO to I believe it was like the vice president of accounting and said, "Hey, we need to wire three million dollars to China." Well, they had a two-person control system in place. The mm -hmm. thing is, the CEO and this person were both authorized signers. So the problem is, yeah. the process required that two authorized signers had to approve it. Well, 
bada bing, bada boom, there's your two authorized if, signers. If one, yeah, right. If one sends the request to the other of the two, there you go. Right, and they had no they had no process or procedure in place to deal with those types of scenarios or any formal process of a communication channel of hey you need to talk about it in person you both need to sign a contract saying hey you know we we agree to this nothing so their only saving grace is it was attempted on a bank holiday yeah right I do remember hearing about that one <laughs> speaking of bank holidays. Uh, let's go ahead and shift gears to uh, an unfortunate to bank. bank. Well, yeah, to the first bank. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to go with the headline that I used whenever we were working on the blog for Advanced Persistent Security. And the headline is Bangladesh Bank Loses $80 million U.S. million with a $10 right. ra- router and no right. firewall. And no firewall. And, no and firewall. we're not making this up. <laughs> We're not no, making we're not. it up at all. So there's been a lot of talk about this, and before we started recording, I made the joke of what is an information security podcast without mentioning it. And to some degree, that's true. All of them I've that I listen to have mentioned it. I, only one hasn't, but they were waiting two weeks in between episodes, so they probably yeah. will mention it. Okay, so Bangladesh's central bank was hacked in February. Thieves successfully stole over $80 million, specifically $81 million. They were trying for $951 million. They were going for a billion, I think it was euros or whatever currency. The exchange rate made it $951 million. We know that the SWIFT software was compromised. We know that uh, the SWIFT software is Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunications. And because of this, it was – we're really unclear as to what happened, but it seems like it was exploited with malware with someone having intricate knowledge of how it worked, almost like an insider threat. This is something I heard in another podcast. Either way, the they attempted 30 transactions to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York from the Bank of Bangladesh. $101 million was actually withdrawn they recouped $20 million in Germany that was headed to Sri Lanka because it was going to a foundation, vice a foundation. They had okay. a typo in there. Exactly. And the remaining $81 million went to the Philippines and down a black hole or a wormhole to never be seen again. There was a stop payment put out for the stuff in the Philippines, but banks in the Philippines are closed on Chinese New Year, and it was Chinese New Year, so it's a matter of clever timing. And if I didn't hit this punny punchline, I would be doing all the listeners a disservice. So basically, the message to cancel it was a day late and a dollar short. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So it was investigated by BAE Systems, and the investigators are saying that the bank was lacking in proper security measures. Well, that's pretty obvious at this point. And a lot of people are actually saying that the SWIFT network uh, is also to blame. Uh, Bangladesh Bank actually pointing that finger as well. So, Well, yeah, since the Fed in New York is the one that stopped the big transactions from actually occurring. 
they're the ones that went to to Swift and stopped it, according to what I see. Exactly. Um, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York blocked 30 transactions for $850 million, um, as the ones who actually stopped it. And so they didn't get all $900 plus million. Exactly. And there's a lot to look at with this. I was... I was listening to something this morning that was talking about it, and the the room that had these servers on it in the Bank of Bangladesh, it was on the eighth floor of the bank, and it had no windows. It was a locked room with four servers in it. And, so, in Dhaka, right? In the, head, in, in the capital. Correct. I believe yeah. so. Yeah. But, I mean, generally speaking, from a physical security perspective, they're doing things right at that point. Right. Exactly. It's that $10 routing device because some people are saying router, some people are saying switch. Eh, you know, either way. Routing device, we'll just say that. That's what it was. But mm-hmm. you, need to, you need to look at a few other things. Was the router compromised itself or was physical security compromised and someone connected a 3G card and did exfiltration that way? These are things we don't know. We're blaming the cheap router and that that's a good place. I mean, when you hear hooves, think horses, not zebras. Right. But there's other things to look at as well. And look at the pivotability. This is definitely a good time for a conversation in the corporate environment for people to talk about trust relationships between contractors. Yeah. Uh, in in the blog, there's a lot of discussion between uh, drawing parallels between. Uh, the Bangladesh Bank and Target. So mm-hmm. in this scenario, they see the Bank of Bangladesh being the contractor that actually attacked Target, that, that was pivoted to, to Target, and Target being the Federal Reserve, which understanding yeah. that the Federal Reserve was not the Target, it's just a way to make it understandable. But there there are several opportunities for pivot in this scenario as well. Yeah, right. Um, but honestly, I, as as a security professional here, I kind of see two things. Um, I see that this is probably only the tip of the iceberg. Uh, Tech Radar seems to think the same thing, and it definitely exploits a fundamental weakness. Notice what I did there instead of uh, yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly, uh, a fundamental weakness in international commerce. But I think it's actually creating a good time for a discussion on regulatory compliance, something like a more worldwide standard. While I understand PCI is not necessarily worldwide, but it, it is to a certain degree. Um, in the well, United one States, of, we have, one of the five foundational members of PCI is Japanese GCB, JCB. So, yeah, I mean, it does have international flavor to it. I mean, a Visa MasterCard are not small. Right, exactly. Um, and we do have the Graham Leach Bliley Act of 1999. Yes. But the thing about Gra- the, the thing about PCI is PCI is only worldwide because the industry made it that way. Yeah, right. So if industry didn't police themselves, it couldn't have been done. What I'm what I'm seeing coming out of there is a couple of different things from a security perspective that need to be viewed. Uh, Mandiant's doing part of the investigation. Um, 
they're really good at that kind of thing anyway. Um, they've, they've determined that there was uh, surveillance on workers as part of the process and understanding and gaining deep knowledge about the internal matters of the bank and how it worked. Um, so I would suspect that there's a physical security component to this. Um, they did find malware. They did make mention, at least in several of the articles that I read, that they found footprints of malware indicating that the system had indeed been breached um, externally through whatever device. So, you know, that type of thing is definitely there. Um, and, um, you know, and, and looking at the mechanism, um, the SWIFT system uh, certainly has some issues uh, as far as the SWIFT Alliance access mechanisms on their activities. Of course, SWIFT, I know, issued, what, two days ago an update to their criteria for cybersecurity postures for their guidelines. Um, I think it was, like, just a couple days ago. Um, as a result of this, uh, Bangladesh is uh, a highly sought-after cyber attack country anyway, um, being the fact that they're, you know, not among the top ten economics countries in the world, so they certainly don't necessarily spend the kind of money they need for technology support and security uh, on an infrastructure that other organizational areas and countries do. Um, you know, they're in the part of the world where it's not all that fantastically wired anyway. Exactly. Um, and so there's not that big of an infrastructure support to support, you know, highly super technical components and devices and appliances to start with. You know, they, they sit next door to the, the, the second most prolific um, internet using uh, community in the world and that runs all on 3G and 4G and they, because they're not wired, you know, that kind of thing. So there's a whole series of technical, operational, obviously from the bank perspective. Um, it looks like that the bank systems that do check for this type of thing, uh, Deutsche Bank, the Fed in New York, those places that were involved in this process triggered the alarms when they were supposed to, when they saw them. Uh, because, of course, uh, Deutsche Bank is the one that stopped the issue with the place in Sri Lanka. Um, the, the fact that it happened with the SWIFT system uh, during Chinese New Year in the Philippines appears to be a timing either intentional or unintentional, whichever it may be. Um, if, if it was unintentional, if it happens again, I guarantee you it will be very <laughs> intentional. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, more but, U.S. dollar accounts involved as opening these that were never used and put the money in $81 million into accounts that were opened with a dollar. You know? Exactly. <laughs> Those types I of mean, things, you know. In America, <laughs> in, in America, you know, that would set off all kinds of alarms using big data, but in other parts of the world, not so much. Right, true enough. Um, right, and I mean, there's another fundamental thing that, you know, you always hear with security that is worth mentioning. It's the attacker only has to be right once. The yeah, defender right. has to be right every time. All the time, right. Exactly. So, 
Um, with, by the time yeah. the alarms got to the Filipino banks, they had already withdrawn 58 of the million, 58 million of the money that had been processed in hand. Um, right. So, you know, that kind they of They were thing. definitely, that's a daylight and a dollar short. Yeah, absolutely. You know, those types of things. So, you know, right. and, and it's an investigation that's worldwide because it involves a South Asian country, a Far Eastern country, uh, U.S., German routing mechanisms that were put in place, things that went to Sri Lanka, you know, just all over the places um, as part of this process. Um, and I think, I think I read part of the stuff actually got routed to Brazil as well. Um, so the the only country that didn't or the only continent that didn't get any love in this was Africa. It was really. Africa or Australia. But that's no, about true. it. Exactly. <laughs> so it spanned it spanned across four continents. I mean that's yeah. pretty significant. And, and definitely the linking mechanisms uh with the anti money laundering council and all the rest of it that's been put in place. Um looks like at least the parts from the western side of this whole scenario look like they at least alarmed and alerted like they were supposed to uh, as part of this mechanism. Um, maybe it's a matter of education at the highest levels of governance, of, of governance, governing that is necessary and understanding what it means on a worldwide scale. I mean, clearly this is the process that we're seeing, you know, just because of the ubiquitous of the internet and doing this type of thing from anywhere. Um, and we've certainly seen that in the terroristic side of the scenario with security, that you can do it from anywhere, that we have to keep in mind of on the fraud, on the bank side, that there's still a lot of uh, economic um, security upkeep that needs to be put in place in order for it to actually take place. So I'm going to use this time to segue over to another bank that got breached, very similar to Bangladesh. This one is another Asian country. Uh, it's in the Arab world called Qatar. It's a Qatar National Bank. It discovered that they had some data out on uh, a data dump site that I'm not going to talk about. It's not Pastebin. It's another one. But uh, other websites are starting to... Um, repost it. They've already harvested it. The data's been deleted on the initial site. What we're seeing is it's included several thousand files with accounts, passwords, pins, over 100,000 accounts, passwords, and pins. And the authenticity has actually been confirmed, and it appears as if it came from Russia. Not only has it been confirmed, it's confirmed by a news organization because their employees were involved in the release, uh, i.e. Al Jazeera's news service employees told Doha News that their message, their information, their personal information was part of what was released. So, um, Well, you don't have to worry about them trying to pull a Spotify. <laughs> nope. <laughs> uh, not really. Um there's a whole series of people um, uh, that were involved in this mechanism from uh, Qatar National Bank all the way up to including the royal family's information was involved in this as well. So Exactly, which, I mean, in the United States, it's it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal because 
we we have cameras on the president at all times. Right. We know every time he plays golf in Hawaii. We know when he goes to Camp David, Cape Cod. We know when he he goes and speaks at a elementary school in Chicago and whatnot. But when you talk about other countries with like royal families and dictators and monarchs, not saying that the royal family is a dictator or no. you know anything of the sort, just to make that clear, they're a little bit more private than things are in the United States. But, right, and, you know, and apparently members of the ruling family, secret service, banks, corporations, defense part of the government, the security police part of the government, all had areas of information that were released as part of these processes. Um, they're looking like it was, uh, what did it say, uh, false information of names and passwords on customers, uh, more than 1,200 people and organizations, better than a gigabyte worth of documents. 1.4 is the number I see listed uh, that oh, they're talking one about. Gigabyte. One, one gigabyte. Superb. I mean, it's not a superbly large scenario, not by any stretch of the imagination. You it's know. not an Ashley Madison, but it's also not a couple hundred files either. No, exactly. And it involves apparently very legitimate information because the reporters uh, put in there, oh, yeah, that was definitely my account number. Yeah, that was also my credit card numbers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Which their- honestly kind of falls under irresponsible reporting, but yeah. <laughs> but I mean it's it's different country, different standards and whatnot. In your opinion, do you think this is connected to Bangladesh in any way, shape, or form, aside from just being another bank? No, honestly, I don't, because it's a different scenario. Uh, The bank issue in Bangladesh, I think, was a cyber crime attack um, because it involved the money transfers to places where money can be returned and gotten out and gotten away from tracking mechanisms, whereas this is informational release. This isn't a money issue and I think this was more of a either an ideologically driven attack mechanism that we commonly see or a revenge mechanism or something along those lines more what I see as far as this one goes okay so more 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 plausibly in line with say terrorism than Mm -hmm. swift right and I mean that it, it is that part of the world. I'm, I'm not saying that terrorism is exclusive to the Arab world, but no. you do you do have a lot of extremist cells in that area. But you know that's not to say that yeah. Indonesia doesn't have issues. It's not to say America doesn't have issues. Oh, no. it, it, extremism really knows no geography. Mm-hmm. It's just no. I just see it. You know, we have two basic areas in our world that we're, we're forever having to deal with with cyber and security and everything else. One is the is the cyber crime scenario, and I think that's what the Bangladesh issue was. And the other is the classic, I don't like what you're saying, I don't like what you're doing, viewpoints that come that people have um, in general. And I just think that this is just another expression of that process because it's become so easy to do because the tools and the techniques are available for people, you know, for dimes on a dollar to be able to get the tools to do these types of attack mechanisms and gather this data and create the malware that will dump the data out so they can get to it so that they can embarrass people. And exactly. I mean, look look at the 
let me preface this with I'm a huge fan of the open source community, but there yeah. are parts of it that this right here I'm going to use to illustrate the downside of the open source community. But mm. like guns, mm. guns and software have no intention. It's sure, all right. behind the person <laughs> using it. So with that being said, it's really easy to come across some pretty high-end software. I mean, Kali Linux is a good place to start. Yeah. If, even if you don't want to go that route, you can you can do a lot of stuff with Nmap. You can do a lot of stuff with the free version of Metasploit. You can oh, yeah. do a lot of stuff with Zap, even. You know, mm -hmm. There's so much free stuff out there or open source stuff out there. You don't have to be able to write the code anymore. Security right. well, and, I mean, that, and that, hacking that's, is... That's definite. You definitely don't need to be a coder. You don't need to be a software guru. Um, you don't need to be a, a whiz kid in order to do this because they've made the tools already. Right. All you guys have to have the... is, is to be able to get to the tools, whether you buy them, whether you download them, whatever it is, it's the tools to it now. So exactly. And, and with that, I mean, basically where you go, where, where you cross that line, in my opinion, between script kitty and hacker is a script kitty just doesn't and doesn't really understand the impact. And it's like, oh, man, I've used all these cool hacker tools, man. Mm -hmm. uh, check this out. Oh, man, I, I really went and pwned Walmart's website the other day. I did a SQL injection. Where the hacker is someone who might may or may not use those same tools, but they understand where they are. And, you know, they're more of a Jedi, if you will, in terms of the understanding and the restraint. All right. Completely absent of, you know, what color hat they're wearing. Yeah, right, it's, exactly. You know, I think that kind of sums up the current events. We've really hit a lot of time <laughs> on the current events. So let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we're actually going to start talking about the actual topic being right, the Cloud right. Security Alliance Treacherous yeah. 12. Right. Sit tight. We'll be back. Are you looking for a place to advertise to the unique audience of IT security professionals and enthusiasts? Look no further. Advanced Persistent Security is seeking sponsors. This slot could be yours. Contact sales at advancedpersistentsecurity.net for more information. Thank you for staying with us. I'm Joe Gray. With me here is Leighton Johnson. We are going to start with the actual topic at hand since we spent so much time talking about current events, but there was a lot to talk about. Hopefully the security community be, will be a little bit more quiet as time goes on. Nonetheless, we are going to talk about the Cloud Security Alliance Treacherous 12. So to start out, the Cloud Security Alliance, they're a nonprofit organization that, similar to other organizations within the IT security space, exist to help raise awareness in secure cloud computing. They have, per their Wikipedia page, over 48,000 members worldwide. Right. Basically, they've been gaining a lot of steam in the last five years since the White House has said, we want to do some cloud computing. Also, yeah, further ever since Vika Kundra came out and said cloud first. Exactly. Per the Wikipedia page, they were formed in 2008. They've been growing. So the Cloud Security Alliance, they they have a few full-time staff, several volunteers. They have chapters. They have individuals. 
They have LinkedIn groups. They have physical groups. They have groups in the cloud, as it would be. Mm -hmm. uh, with regards to that, they have alliances with other organizations in the security space. They, there are some certifications involved. They helped out with CompTIA's Cloud Plus. They had their own cloud security certification, uh, the CCSK. Which uh, certified. Still I wasn't even aware if it was still around or not. Yes, yes it is. It makes sense. Uh, it's the Certified Cloud Security Knowledge Certification. Mm -hmm. uh, and then one that I'm actually actively working on right now is with ISC Squared, and that is taking the CCSP. Not to be confused with the old Cisco CCSP, oh. that is now the CCNP Security. This is the Certified Cloud Security Professional. Is it Actually, the CCSP is an extension and an expansion of the CCSK. The CCSK okay. is Cloud Security Alliance built, was designed around being certified in cloud security knowledge. Um, so you had that basis. They had two primary uh, mechanisms for portraying that knowledge as they had their own um, uh, document that they produced, and then they used the ANESA document for uh, conducting risk assessments in the cloud as the primary mechanisms, and that was basically 90% of the, the knowledge base required for CCSK. Um, so it's sort of like a foundational base for understanding that, whereas ISC squared has now expanded it into six domains and taken it uh, a step further into the actual security practitioner side of the scenario from a cloud security perspective and developed and introduced last year the CCSP or 18 months ago, roughly, in conjunction with Jim Levis and the other people within the Cloud Security Alliance community as part of these processes, um, and taking the varying domains of CS, the, the Cloud Security Alliance guidance and the categories of service and all those types of things and expanding them out. And that's which, now what is the CCSP. Which actually is, is something that is, is definitely well received. It's it, there's definitely a need for it. It's not one of those worthless certifications that no, is no. just there. Especially with everybody, I need to go to the cloud. I want my own public cloud. I want a private cloud. How's how's about a hybrid cloud or in the defense space? Oh, you're everybody's trying to move to DIS's cloud, or everybody's trying to avoid moving to DIS's cloud. Yeah, avoid it, no cloud, no rest of it. <laughs> Exactly. So within that, very similar to how SANS does the SANS Top 20 Critical Security Controls, which I believe has actually been renamed to no longer carry the SANS name. It's the Center for Internet Security, 20 Critical Security Controls. Mm -hmm. And then you have the OWASP Top 10, which Sorry. is basically web application security problems. Prior to 2016, you actually had the notorious nine cloud security threats, but three more mm -hmm. popped up in the last three years. So now we're at the, no, the treacherous 12. Right, and actually their whole process is that they originally came up with a list of potentially up to 20, and then they pared it down um, as they went through it, and then they ended up with 12 critical issues as part of their process. 12 is a very manageable number. I mean – the the SANS Top 20 is a really good list. I did a podcast about SANS Top 20 early on about six months ago, 
and there are plans to cover it again in the future, but we're not there yet. I felt that cloud security was more important, so we're going to discuss this and probably web application security before we go back to the SANS Top 20. So 12 is a really good number for that. So I'm right. just going to briefly go over the 12 threats, and then at that point we're going to start on the list of uh, 1 through 4, which will be this specific episode. So the first concern is data breaches. Number two is insufficient identity, credential, and access management. Number three, insecure interfaces and APIs. Number four, system vulnerabilities. Account hijacking. Malicious insiders. Advanced persistent threats, not to be confused with advanced persistent security. <laughs> Data loss, insufficient due diligence. Abuse and nefarious use of cloud services. Denial of service and shared technology issues. So that's where we're going with this. Sit tight and just relax and prepare to absorb our analysis of the first four. So starting out, number one, data breaches. Obviously, we've been talking about data breaches because our current events topic ran in excess of 30 minutes. So right. data breaches are... They, I wish I could say they are something that rarely occurs and the risk for it is minimal, but it's really not. If you have an information system that is on a network, it is susceptible to attack. And by attack, there are different reasons for attack. You can do a data breach or you could do a denial of service. There, there's so many other things you could do. But with a data breach, that's where you're talking about losing things like PHI, personal health information, financial information, PII, intellectual property, uh, classified material, even though it shouldn't be there. With regards to this, specifically like personal information like PII and PHI, you're talking about the capability of stealing someone's identity. They right. can always get a new credit card. You can't get a new identity. Exactly. I mean, to the point like the, the old uh, one, the, the OPM breach with fingerprints, you can't change a fingerprint. You know, that happened as a breach process. The data was exfiltrated out to wherever it went, and, you know, you can't change it. You have a multitude of issues. You know, I mean, data breaches is all about a breach of confidentiality anyway. That's always been the major concern in the security community for 60 years. I mean, it goes all the way back to the rainbow tables, and that's what they were focused on was confidentiality and everything along those lines. Today, um, that data is in the cloud. That data is cloud-based. It's used for various different mechanisms by various different parties for various different reasons. It's obviously targets. It's what has a bullseye on it worldwide that everybody's interested in, uh, whether it's because of the organized crime trying to get the financial side uh, back from the information or competitors doing the industrial viewpoint of surveillance or foreign nationals uh, on an espionage side or proprietary information or sealing trade secrets, it's all about data breaches. It's all about exposing information. We were talking about in the current events, you know, activists wanting to expose information. That's a data breach that constituted that process. We have had insider threats that perform data breaches. Clearly, we've had two major ones in the last four years uh, involving well, information out of the U.S. government. Um, right. You know, 
the Manning case and the Snowden case, both of them. Those were data breaches. So right. the construct of a data breach is not unique to cloud, but it is certainly a large concern for users in the cloud and providers because now uh, not only is it that there's the same threat arenas that we have in general in the security world, now we have additional areas that we have to be concerned about because cloud providers are highly accessible. The vast amounts of data that they host makes them a very large target. They are constantly considered as third-party providers. So we have the issue that comes into play from this perspective of how does that play with uh, compliance? How does it play with reporting? How does it play with all sorts of areas? So there's all sorts of potential business impacts, laws, regulations, mechanisms that are out there, especially in the cloud arena. I mean, when I worked on the, on the CSA uh, committee to put together the incident response mechanisms for the cloud, I mean, we were we spent months working on getting the protocols right between the U.S., uh, the Europeans, the Far Eastern organizations as providers. You know, months working on getting those protocols right um, because everybody is subject to a breach. The sensitivity of the data, of course, determines the potential extent of the damage, the impact, uh, but every one of these is all based on what happens. Uh, you know, our classic security criteria of information protection is to make sure our data isn't out there. And one of the big things that I, I think from the information security perspective, not necessarily the technical security perspective of this, right. when, when you're evaluating a cloud provider, that's a great time that you need to take a look at your service level agreement. Oh, yeah. This is something that if... At, as, as a manager or an authorizing party, if you're establishing service with a cloud provider and you are not finding out who is responsible if we are attacked, who how the incident handling process will work, how the incident response process works oh, in, in a cloud environment, then you're setting yourself up. Right. I mean, so the number one threat is breaches, certainly. So we have to look at it of the mechanisms. Number one, you know, some of the criteria that we've seen um, from a response mechanism, from a handling mechanism, from a liability mechanism, from a responsibility mechanisms, what? Say what? The data owner is still the responsible party, number one. The cloud provider is the one that they, they have to have good security for the things that they have contracted for, but ultimately the owner of the data is the one that's responsible for protection of the data. So we have to look at the security program that the organization has as an area to handle on data breach mechanism. Of course, then there's the technical pieces that, that we can use, uh, as we will talk about uh, throughout the cloud arena. You know, those do come into play, certainly. You know, as you're going to hear when we get to number two, it's directly related to technical issues. Uh, you know, with multi-factor authentications, with, you know, encrypting your data at all times whenever it's outside your door, um, i.e. in the cloud type scenarios, you know, all sorts of mechanisms from a technical, but it's still about maintaining control 
and exercising the standards of due care uh, as we look at these. Um, we clearly see with not just cloud breaches, but data breaches in general as a focal point, we hear another case a week, if not more often. At least since the first of this year, it has been consistent that we've had at least one or two cases per week that involve large numbers of informational components, whether it was 10 million records here or 80 million records there or 21 and a half million records over there, whatever it might be, it was large numbers. And so clearly the extent of the issue around data breaches is actually getting bigger, not smaller, because we're starting to see uh, technology advances such that our normal mechanisms that we've always had in the past for controlling uh, the security, the protection of our information, aren't nearly as strong as the technologies that are advancing today. Exactly. Um, and, I mean, you may not see data breaches as often, but the severity of data breaches, that's definitely... You know, the impact the level is dramatically higher. You know, Poneman survey on the cost of a data breach is consistently, you know, high numbers for an organization per event. You know, whatever it is these days, uh, $5 million or $5.1 million per event in his most recent survey, whatever it is along those lines, you know, it just keeps, you know, organizations that end up having to get credit monitoring for their consumers whose data is stolen in case something happens and indirect and, you know, reputational damage and market share damage to a company. And then there's the actual issues of having to, you know, if you're dealing with PHI and the data, you're going to get hit with fines from the government. You know, same thing with PCI, you know, same thing with PII uh, and in, in basically any kind of protected data, you're going to get hit with at least fines, maybe jail time. Right. And so any data breach process, the actual damage issue revolved around it, of course, is based on the sensitivity of the information in and of itself. But right. uh, the fact that breaches are now about multiple forms of information, not just one or two focal points, the fact that multiple different kinds of information is being monetized in the cybercrime arena, indicates that there's more and more areas of that kind of information that's targeted as a data breach. Uh, cloud, in and of itself, the fact that it's, you know, on-demand, reliable mechanisms that expand and contract as necessary, it becomes important to understand this and begin to see how these impact issues come into play. So, yeah, it remains number one on the list for a reason. Uh, yeah. Right. You can kind of also look at it this way as well. With conventional client-server architecture, you the the data owner had complete control, mm -hmm. and especially of the 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 network boundaries. Uh -huh. With with the cloud service, all you need is an internet connection, mm -hmm. and and at that point, you know the data breach. Yes, you're going to try to exfiltrate data, but at the same time you could also be stealing computing power for mm -hmm. other far more nefarious purposes, which we'll get into later, but it's definitely worth looking at. 
Um, a few attacks that I want to think about really quickly that had some problems with the cloud because they, in essence, did it wrong. The biggest one that comes to mind is Ashley Madison. Because they actually had their AWS keys uh-huh. as well as the private key of their SSL certificates and their Twitter API keys in their source code. Right. So it's one of those th- – I remember when I wrote the blog about it, I postulated, did the people who write this code take the best practices and explicitly do what they said not to do? But you know, you also in, in the year 2015, based on the Cloud Security Alliance document, Bitdefender had uh, usernames yeah. and passwords stolen because of a security vulnerability in AWS. And while it wasn't ransomware, the hacker that was responsible for it demanded ransom. Right. It's just a matter of time before ransomware makes its way to the, the Internet cloud. of Things, yeah. the cloud, and, and cars. Right. And we see it coming. Um, I mean, that that whole big, uh, we just had the meeting in Detroit where the governments went to talk to the the car vendors about computer security because of all the computers that they're putting in cars and and the potentials with IPv6 addressing of all those devices. That's a terrible idea because of router solicitation and router advertisement. You can find out, you can, I don't like IPv6 for those two reasons anyway, but (laughs) putting it in a car is reckless. The fact that Tesla's come with a custom build of Ubuntu, that's you know a little bit more comforting because they're right. a little bit more open about it, and they do their over-the-air right. updates. But, I mean, I wrote a blog about that on Advanced Persistent Security talking about Tesla, the fact that it was hackable. They allowed people to hack it at Black Hat, which granted by the time it went public, it had already been fixed except on that one car. They were hacking via OnStar and via the navigation system in Chrysler cars. And the automobile industry, exactly. And the automobile industry is saying, oh, well, you know, we're closed source because we don't trust those hackers. It's like, you don't understand hackers because the more you say no, the more they find ways. You know, I still remember the guy who used to go to DEF CON every year with his Bluetooth, take his laptop, go out on Las Vegas Boulevard outside Caesar's Palace and take over the, the limo to drive him by in the Bluetooth scenario and then drive the car himself on this laptop. Right. I mean, it's all connected. It's just it a is. matter of finding the access point. I mean, we know that it's all about access anyway, as, it's these, as we see, you know, uh, Soden credentials, Anthem issue, Talk Talk issues, Anthem issue, all about credentials, about coming in, you know, all this stuff is in the cloud. You know, both exactly. those were cloud-based issues. Uh, right. So, you know, yeah, data breaches in the cloud is a definite focus. I know uh, the Cloud Security Alliance Common Control Matrix shows there are 24 areas of, of concern that we can use to focus our security. You know, and number one is what? Encrypt it. <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, it, unless Clearly. you've been living under a rock, that's what you should be doing anyway. Uh, true. But, I, mean, I mean, that look, was TalkTalk's problem. They didn't encrypt their issue. They didn't encrypt right. it. And I mean, that's just lazy. Uh, unless you have a significant issue with latency, like you have no tolerance for the latency that encryption would add, it doesn't matter if you're just sending across pictures of bubbles. 
you right. you should be encrypting it. I am right. a huge proponent of encryption, and I don't care what it is. It should always be. I don't be care encrypted. which one. I don't care those mechanisms. You know, it slows the system down, maybe. But I've been around encryption long enough to know that the the benefits far outweigh the costs of using it. Of course, stronger ones are better. But you know, just doing the process is important because that slows down the vast majority of outside issues anyway um, because then they got to expend some know-how and some technical expertise in order to get what they're going after. Go ahead and shift over to control number two, number two. so that we can keep everything uh, moving. <laughs> right. Number two being insufficient identity, credential, and access management. Mm. The classic so, ICAM world – um, as it's been designed in the last five years, based upon web services, starting with the advent of the cloud, back when we had SOA and those types of things, starting with identity credentialing and access management mechanisms, working the way into SAML and those types of scenarios with federated identities. And that's what this one's about. The lackable, the lack of scalable, functional authentication, identity management systems, IDM systems, um, IEM systems, and then the incredible issue with, obviously, access around the cloud, uh, i.e. password usage, the lack of automation mechanisms. I mean, it's improving, but this is right. still a big, big issue as what was happening with GitHub's issue of embedding crypto keys right into their public-facing repository. So if someone could write it, you know, would run one of their, their robot spiders through the system, they would find them, you know, that kind of stuff because it was out there. So there's a significant issue of discovery, misuse with the keying mechanisms. Clearly, we need to have scalability because the lifecycle management of millions of users uh, and the cloud provision, provider side as provisioning mechanisms need to become more automated. Uh, we start to see issues here as well. Since right. And with that one, I mean, with the provisioning, provisioning is important, but I think deprovisioning is even more important. It is. Because it is. <laughs> as soon, you know, as soon as, as soon as that employee leaves or is terminated or whatever – that account should be deactivated, and I'm not saying you should delete it immediately because there's no, no, forensic no. and and there there are valid no, cases. No, not deleted. It's the... deactivated is the right term. It, it needs exactly. to be turned off. It doesn't need to be removed. It just needs right. to have its processes turned off. Um, exactly. I mean, there there comes a point that you should delete it, but that should yeah. be 30, 60, 90 days Whatever. just in case there's any sort of litigation or any sort of forensic value to it. Mechanisms, yeah, because, of course, we get the issue with this, because this is a classic where the path to hash issues come in, as in this arena. This is where we run into the issues of compromising passwords, cards. Which is really very, not that – if you're really using other. Metasploit – yeah, it, I mean, that really doesn't matter. Um, if you're Metasploit, Enum, and Metasploit, Enum, WMIC, mm -hmm. and PSExec, 
if they're running a Windows type VM, it doesn't matter if it's in the cloud or regular, but I mean, with those tools alone, you can create a pretty nice pass the hash uh, attack and get a yeah, lot yeah. of literal lateral movement. Right. And then that goes back to that problem we were discussing earlier about password reuse. Right. right, exactly. You know, making sure that we got storage mechanisms with the data secrets are extremely high-value targets who know that they're going to have a, a, a an attack mechanism that they're going to attempt to go after, you know, the, the crown jewels anyway um, in these arenas. So as with any high-value asset, we got to make sure that we monitor and protect the identities and management systems over those. Um, key control, you know, as with anything in encryption, that the key is the key. Um, so, yeah, I know that's uh, a cliche, but it's true. You right, know? and that's, a, that's one of those times you really need, you need the public key infrastructure and you need yeah. the symmetric encryption you, you need the private scenario too you know the, the individualized right. where it's the same on both sides so it's strong and fast and real time because we are talking about moving data here so in right. these arenas we need to, to keep that as well and understanding that as well not not use asymmetric encryption to move data i mean for encrypting the moving data that isn't going to work that's why we have symmetric you know, yeah, right. the overhead might be a little bit higher. However, you know, you get that. You know, malicious people masquerading as legitimate users because they compromise an admin account, that's, you know, computer security 101. If that's where that happens. Uh, elevated privilege issues. We've seen a lot of that over the past five years. So insufficient identity credential and key management mechanisms will enable unauthorized access, catastrophic potential issues. Um, it can create a denial of service for authorized users. Denial of service, you know, and on and on and on it goes, you know. Right. Even Pretoria well, I mean, had their issue, you know, in this well, arena. As you, a, as a, this way. You, you know, you have your authorized users, you have your unauthorized users. When an unauthorized user compromises an authorized user account, there's basically two ways they can go. Are they going to stay quiet and try to coexist, or are they going to change the password and let basically out themselves, effectively creating at least a temporary denial of service? Or are they going to, you know, what are they going to do with that escalation of privilege? Right. You know, so, uh, and then there's the whole spoofing problem that comes well, out with yeah. this as well. You know, the, the issue today, of course, in the cloud is the fact that we're dealing with um, scalability and immediate privileging and deprovisioning uh, mechanisms that we have to have because they're federated with the identity mechanisms that are in place with a cloud provider. Using SAML, sure, but it's more prevalent and eases the burden of user maintenance. We got to make sure that the technology that we have, the segmentations, the infrastructures, the processes that are implemented by our cloud providers um, meet the criteria that we need for access, for access control, for identification, authentication um, as part right. of those processes. And that's what fits in this arena. This is why right. it's number and two. 
<laughs> exactly, and that's exactly what I was about to say because you know whenever you want to compare this over to the CISSP domains, access control is a huge yeah. portion of that, and without oh, the credential prevent, credential pre- provisioning and access control, those go together like two peas in a pod. So right. this the list of catastrophic. I mean, two, two, two of the four primary technical arenas that. NIST has produced in their security catalog in the sky, as I call it, SBA 153. Two of the four technical areas are this: are exactly. you know access controls and identification and authentication. And because one works the other, they go together. There's 19 CCM controls that the Cloud Security Alliance has put in their matrix that are tied to this scenario, um, revolving around identities and identification. And then access management, um, you know, so, you know, those pieces and parts of lifecycle provisioning and segregation of duties and principles of least privilege that we've had for years, we need to make sure that it's there. This is that arena, and this is the threat area that they see um, as, as the second of the trenches. 12 is not keeping this up. Okay. Exactly. Uh, especially considering that it's, especially with it con- traversing the public internet in some cases. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's that's all the more reason to be concerned with it. Uh, let's go ahead and stop with uh, number, number two. two and take a quick break. And when we come back, we will cover number three and four. Okay. Are you subscribed to this podcast? If not, please do so on iTunes and at advancedpersistentsecurity.net slash podcast. Okay, we're back from the break, and now we're going to talk about uh, threats number three and four, insecure interfaces and APIs, as well as system vulnerabilities. So starting out with insecure interfaces and APIs, this is something I kind of touched on a little bit before when I was talking about some of the oopses and uh-ohs, if you will, that Ashley Madison had in terms of having API keys in their source code. Everybody has an API or a UI or a UX, uh, an application programming interface, a user interface, or the user experience. And basically that allows customers to manage and interact with the services. With that, you have – that's basically allowing people to use part of your program to do what they want to do. Absolutely. And with with doing it – uh, you've really got to protect against policy circumvention, which this is something you have to protect against anyway. To talk about, I'm going to take a quote that Georgia mentioned in the podcast that I recorded with her, where she cited her friend Jason Street of Pony Express for saying, if you want to know how good your security policy works and how well people can circumvent it, uninstall Solitaire. Right. If there was a way to uninstall Solitaire in an API, you could find out all the accidental and malicious ways to circumvent it. Absolutely. Uh, APIs are the most exposed part of a system by design. Um, So the asset that has the IP address available outside your trusted boundary is going to be the API scenario. So we always have to understand that the, the... Mechanisms that are callable from outside in and then internal going across scenario activities 
and general cloud services is all based upon API. This is the development that the cloud came up of using web services with WS Plus and WS Security and all the things back in the, the 90s with SOA and as it evolved into the cloud uh, over the last 10 years or so, the API mechanisms have remained there because, of course, that's how we communicated from layer to layer, federation to federation, uh, and looking at those mechanisms. And so, of course, by having these interfaces open, you can add value to services to your customers. You can clearly, at the same time, increase your risks because you are going to relinquish credentials to enable agency and organizations to get in to do things with your activities. So provisioning, management, monitoring, all are done through APIs. And so insecure APIs and interfaces is by far a very important area, has a high impact in all areas, uh, confidentiality, integrity, availability, accountability, uh, threat modeling mechanisms show us that data flows is commonly an issue, all driven by what? APIs. So tampering with data, elevation of privilege mechanisms, all these things that we see this issue. Now, we have consistently over the last, as an example, two years, listened to the IRS was breached, but no, they really weren't. They had an open system to get transcripts back, which was breached several times over the last 12 or 18 months or so. But it was all based on a vulnerable API mechanism, get transcript, done through a fax activity. It, you know, it's as simple technologically as that, potentially, uh, up to some major areas of dealing with how you watch it, what you're monitoring, all those mechanisms, because APIs are the openings into systems by design that third parties built these mechanisms to be able to do all these services that they are providing with their activities. Exactly. And one thing that I kind of want to throw in here from the social engineering and phishing perspective, I mean, just engineering in general, you, if you can get a hold of somebody's API, you can kind of reverse engineer it and understand how the organization works. Maybe right. not – it's not going to be like to the same degree as a very successful trip dumpster diving where you find all kinds of manuals, job descriptions, so forth and so on. But you can actually gain some understanding of how people and organizations work by the way their API works. Right. I mean if you, if you – disassemble it and you know basically reverse engineer it to the point to where you're you know you're doing a code review on it you can see do these people follow coding best practices do they comment well are they you know are they using a secure programming language what's the vulnerabilities in this programming language what can i do with this how can i misuse this because of the nature of an api that's how it's going to work you can't really protect people from getting your api I mean, you could, right? And then we start having one, right? And then we start seeing the misuse of the actual API keys and the cloud mechanisms where programmers are using them to transfer uh, the actual keys for encryption. Right. So they're using API keys for stuff that matters when they shouldn't have been. Um, 
where they're using them in, uh, uh, keys are used to identify users, even though it's not meant to authorize and do that process, but it is. Uh, then, of course, they don't treat them as critical, so they email them around and, you know, all the rest of that. Uh, so API keys were first used in the early pioneers of web services as we moved to web 2.0 and then the mashups and then as it moved to, to where we're at today through these processes, you know, with SAML and HMACs and OAuths and all the rest of it, we're using API keys to do these rather than those tools that should be doing what it is. Um, so exactly. we're seeing those mechanisms too. And, and that's and, where our issue comes with APIs. Um, as we see them, we're starting to see exposed keys, sensitive data growing uh, in these areas. Clearly, of course, now we're talking, uh, if we're relying on a weak set of interfaces or our APIs are exposing it to a variety of security issues, we're going to run into confidentiality problems. We're going to clearly run into integrity issues. We're going to clearly run into DOS attacks and availability problems in the cloud and those types of scenarios. That's definitely true. And the one thing, the final thing I would want to add to this is it doesn't matter if it's the cloud or not, but with regards to your developers and your programmers and the misuse of keys and how, how free they are with using them, there's really only one true way to circumvent that happening and to basically nip it in the bud before it becomes an issue. And that's a user awareness program. It, you need to make users cognizant of what they're doing and the ramifications of and establish procedures that you convey via the training to your users so they understand, hey, I shouldn't be doing this. And at the same time, that also provides a level of accountability for your users. So if they do violate the policy that you've said, hey, don't, you know, and we trained you on it. So we wrote the policy. We gave you the training. We said, don't do this. And you did it. You're negligent. I'm sorry, you are now also unemployed. Yeah. You know, and, and I would add there is one extra thing in that process, too, is teach them how to do secure coding. Secure coding and secure <laughs> transit mechanisms. Yeah, I mean, if you're exactly. going to pass keys, you, know, you need to know the correct way to do it. You need to know the right ways to do it uh, in a secure manner that maintains its confidentiality and doesn't compromise the integrity of the, of the process either. I cannot miss the opportunity to actually mention that advanced persistent security does information security policies. We can review them. We can revise them. And if you don't have them, we can write them for you. We just need to know the understandings that the organization would have. In terms of user awareness programs, we can help you design a user awareness program. We can even provide the user awareness training for you at the level of regular users, executives, privileged users, and then specifically social engineering and phishing awareness training. Absolutely. There, there are many tools and techniques out there. Um, your organization provides this um, in your area. There are many processes. I constantly travel around the country, and I'm asked at the highest levels in organizations about security, even at security companies. I, I was just teaching a security class three weeks ago, at a chip manufacturer in California that has just been in the news in the last two days. And part of their company is a security organization that they purchased several years ago. Um, so even there, they had awareness mechanisms and, and processes. They, they had indications. Uh, there are many sources. 
you need to have an awareness program. You need to have the ability to, to design that process around the users, around the senior management executives of the organization, around the elevated privilege users within the organization, and your own security staff needs to have awareness of this whole process as well, uh, independent of the rest of them, because that's who's going to be checking to make sure that it's actually there. Part of what my company does is do the checking. I've specialized in the security review mechanisms for doing these types of things. Done a lot of threat evaluation, taught cyber classes to governmental organizations around the world uh, over the last couple of years, all leading into uh, number four <laughs> and our concerns as part of our processes. So it certainly is there um, right. as we begin to work through these mechanisms. Right. And with system vulnerabilities, this is an old problem in a new place. Right. Will you see it on the software as a service platform? Maybe not so much. In the infrastructure and platform as a service? Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Why? Because <laughs> infrastructure as a service is nothing more than the operating system in the cloud. Platform right. as a service is nothing more than, like, say, your Apache, your Nginx, your Tomcat, your IIS in the cloud. That's right. all it really is. Right. Uh, and mean, with multi-tenancy Windows, and cloud computing systems from multiple organizations all on the same boxes in the same area in the same cloud provisioning, you're going to have those problems from shared memory, resources. It creates a whole new attack surface. Exactly. A new surface. You so could be co-located on the same server as your number one competitor. It is entirely possible. And so we need to keep in mind that those standard mechanisms clearly still are there, that we have been instituted over the last 30 years in the security industry with patching boxes and scanning them and checking on them and threat evaluations and vulnerabilities evaluations, looking at the risks, getting your patches, your upgrades in there, secure architectures and secure design lessens the attack footprint the attack surface, so we use those as well uh, to help us lessen the, the potential of them coming after your system as part of those processes. Clearly, of course, we've seen far back as six, seven years ago with Google and Aurora about boxes that were unpatched and software that was unpatched and the kinds of things that can be done with it. Clearly see these mechanisms from the threat research, you know, we now we got this whole scenario around threat hunting coming out here where it's just simply going back the other way and we're looking for this being developed and we're trying to find them. Um, right. It's the marriage yeah. of vulnerability management and big data, basically. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, and you know, you get the CBEs out there, the common vulnerabilities and exposures identified in a national vulnerability database. Everybody knows what they are. So Exactly. That, and I mean we we've seen a lot of stuff with the vulnerability management landscape as of late, which granted it's not cloud, but you know, look at what happened with QuickTime in the last you know, oh, yeah. X number of days. Apple just decided, hey, uh, nice knowing you guys on Windows. Uh, no more QuickTime for you. Right. And so DHS the next day issues a statement to all government agencies take QuickTime off. It's no longer supported. Boom. Exactly. I mean, that made world news. <laughs> Yeah. Look Look at where security has evolved. If World News is reporting, remove QuickTime from your machines on Windows. Right. I mean, it's unsecure. Yeah. Right, exactly. 
just think of all those stereotypical pasties in their parents' basements that's like, oh my gosh, I wish the news would shut up. I'm exploiting things. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> but I guarantee you, I guarantee you, I guarantee you. You know, if in three and, years and, you know, we go even looking. our most recent surveys that just came out in the last couple of weeks, again, reiterate the, the basic foundational core understanding of vulnerability management and the processes. What was it? Right. 92% um, that I saw in the in the process, in the survey that just came out from, I guess I want to say Alienware or whomever it was a couple of days ago, that the vulnerabilities were patchable. They were already identified. It wasn't that it was a zero day. It wasn't that it was new. It was that it was already identified and had been fixed. We just had to put it on the box, and that didn't happen. And so then things got taken care of. Vulnerability remediation activities are often very straightforward. Sometimes they have to be worked on. Sometimes you have to walk through those. You do have to test those things. Right. Well, I mean, sometimes it's patch and pray. The patch and pray method, it, it's widely used, but it's not always effective. Sometimes, right. you know, just pushing the patch and praying it works, works. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you have to push the patch and then you have to modify a line of code in a right. file or right. you change a registry key or change, uh, delete a DLL. It, it, it all just varies, and it's something that a true vulnerability management program will take care of and encompass because it doesn't matter if you care about the vulnerabilities. It, it matters you know, where your vulnerabilities are placed, how well you handle right. them, and how quickly you remediate them. Right. I, Trend micros. Horizons. I mean, yesterday or this morning, the new data breach report came out. So I guess that's your topic for next week. The 2016 Verizon data breach report hit the street this morning. Um, it is next week's topic now. <laughs> I, I have my copy. I'll put it that way. I downloaded it from Verizon this afternoon. It hit the street this morning. <laughs> I will tell you the one thing I hate about um, and, and, and everything in there is about vulnerabilities. You know. One of the biggest issues is not patching boxes. So we, we will talk about that. Yes, definitely. Well, here, here's the question with regards to this. Mm -hmm. The Verizon business unit that actually wrote up this, is that the same Verizon business unit that got breached? No, it's not. Okay. <laughs> I had to ask because... Uh, I understand, but no, it's not. <laughs> No, no, it's not. This is the one that works with the Secret Service. Is uh -huh. <laughs> the one that writes up the data breach side. Uh, it's their their division that works with the uh, USSS, i.e., the U.S. Secret Service, to do all this stuff. Because that's who the government sponsor is of this. It used to be the FBI, but now it's the Secret Service. Um, well, the FBI is too busy, you know. Commissioning right. the All Writs Act to uh, access a singular cell phone via what yes. some people say would be uh, a means of the invasion of privacy, while yeah. there's reason to speculate that there could be some unsigned updates that were pushed and utilized to circumvent security measures that have since been remediated. That is what we've heard <laughs> in the last two days. True enough. I mean <laughs> – 
I would say uh, in a, we had a blog about an unsigned update from Apple specifically for iPhone 5s uh, uh, a little bit over a week ago. Right. So might be worth taking a look at. Anyway, with regards to system vulnerabilities, yeah, I mean, this one, in my opinion, depending – this goes back to the whole service level agreement and what have you. Because the system vulnerability aspect of it, depending on what your service level agreement has, you may or may not be responsible for vulnerability management if you're doing platform as a service or infrastructure as a service, depending right. on how it's written. But you know, if you are responsible for it, then it is your duty and your – I mean you should be making sure that machine is up to date for the sake of your provider and the sake of – your provider's other clients because of data bleed over. Well, yeah, you could be uh, on the same and, server. And 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 due care or due diligence demand that whether you're responsible for actually conducting the the vulnerability management or oversight or tweaking the people who are to ensure that they're doing it, that they're following a mechanism that is standardized so you can look at it because the impact from unpatched system issues is just incredibly costly, profound issue, and the costs for protection are incredibly small when you patch boxes um, instead of having to clean up after patches have been, you know, what has been patched, a vulnerability that's been patched, it's exploited. I mean, uh, we have those issues. We see the organizations that are highly regulated, uh, are capable of handling patch quickly, in a in an automated mechanism as well, we we see these processes across multiple industries in the cloud that are using them in the cloud mechanisms, um, and this is just one of those things that has to be, you know, patching your boxes, doing vulnerability management is something that our software industry has built itself around the process for 45 years, 50 years, since the first software rolled out the doors. As shrink wrap mechanisms that consumers would buy back in the 70s. You know, in 40 years we've had this mechanism in place. We need to do that in order to keep the the scenario vulnerability scenarios low, so that patching can be done, so remediation can be conducted, so testing of those patches, so we don't crash our own systems, uh, to help reduce the risk. It's all about reducing the risk anyway. I mean. 67% of all systems were affected uh, in the Linux world by heart bleed and shell shock. Patchable. Exactly. But, you know, that kind of scenario. The most recent cyber threat defense report from Trend Micro, 75% of all attacks use publicly known vulnerabilities in commercial software that has already been patched. Well, I mean, look at um, everybody's <laughs> you know? favorite. Look at Badlock. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm not going to say that. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna say that bad luck was anything really, but well, it's been I mean, handled. You know, even it, DOD, it had a you know, no, no government agency, no organization is not subject to these issues. You know, so we, we got to understand that it's something that needs to be done for 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 cyber hygiene, for security hygiene, is to have a patch system that is functioning in place, not one that's just on paper and not happening, but one that's actually functioning. Um, well, and, exactly. that's the, and that's the big, 
mechanism that needs to be shun, done. Well, I mean, security in its most rudimentary form should be patch management. Um, I mean, the first if if I were going to tell someone if you're going if you're not going to do any other security things, here's where I would start. Yeah. Patch your box, have strong passwords, don't yeah. share your passwords and turn off unnecessary services. Right. At that point, you've just made it really difficult. Right. Not impossible, but difficult. Right. And then add devices, firewalls, whatever mechanisms, personal processes to handle the various malware components that are showing up on different things and you're covered. You know, exactly. that's a big piece of it. Um, it's all a manner of managing the risk anyway. So we have to everybody has that. everybody has a certain appetite for a yeah. certain level of risk. They do. And it's a matter of finding that happy medium. And you know, you've got to find that level of risk that allows everyone to do what they need to do without creating any undue harm. Right. Yeah. So uh, let's go ahead and wrap this up. We're going to take our final break, and when we come back, we will do a quick summarization, and Leighton will give you some parting advice, tell you how to contact him, and we sure. will see you off. Don't forget to check out our blog at advancedpersistentsecurity.net slash blog. Follow us on Twitter at ADV Persistent SEC and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash advancedpersistentsecurity. Okay, so we're back from the break and uh, we're going to do a quick summary and then uh, I'm going to turn it over to Leighton to give you some parting advice and tell you how to contact him. So in this episode, we covered the first four of the Treacherous 12 security concerns from the Cloud Security Alliance. We talked about data breaches and how they kind of differ and the motives, the classification, and a few examples. Then we talked about insufficient ICAM, identity credential and access management, the kinds of issues you could run into with that and the kind of havoc that could result from it, and some of the root causes of why. Then we talked about insecure interfaces and APIs and system vulnerabilities. That pretty much sums up this episode. Leighton, I'm going to turn the floor over to you. Tell the listeners how they can contact you, your Twitter handle if you have one, email address, website. Tell us about your books, and then we will uh, see you later. Okay. I'm available online at website is ISF mt.com that's my organization that i've been running for about eight years now as part of the process stands for information security forensics management team uh, we basically provide security consulting and uh, training around the world for varying organizations and activities uh, i teach a vast array of security certifications i am one of the people that is re worked several of the major certifications out there as well. Someday in the future, we need to talk about those, Joe. I'm the guy who's one of the eight guys who wrote C-Risk in the first place. <laughs> those types of things. Those activities, we're, we basically talked initially today about what are the top threats in the cloud from a security perspective. What are the mechanisms we need to look at from the Cloud Security Alliance viewpoint, taking a 
uh, uh, process of down looking at the treacherous 12 and looking at them from data breaches, those mechanisms. If you want to talk further about the four that we talked about, you can get me on my email, which is Leighton.Johnson at ISFNT.com. I'm available in that arena. If you want to get a background based upon my stuff, you can always go to Amazon, check the blog on this website for advanced persistent security. I've got two books in the field right now. One is on uh, incident response and forensics team management and how to put together teams uh, in both the incident response and in forensics mechanisms. I'm actually teaching the class this week uh, for a national organization on incident response, um, how to put together the constructs. I also have a book out that just came out last Christmas on how to actually test the security controls as found in 853. The mechanisms that the government put together are great, but they write standards. They don't write technical activities. So what I did is I wrote the technical piece of how do you test access or the principal least privilege? What do you go look for? What are the actual pieces? You know, that kind of thing. And that's what I did in that particular document. I'm writing a book right now, a professional security management certification as part of the process, a, a quick shot guide, a couple hundred pages, understanding what are the criteria for overseeing security. Appears to be a large problem out in our community that we've seen where there's not a whole lot of managers that have been able to translate the technical to management. And so we need to work on those arenas in order to get where our industry really needs to be uh, in the forefront of fighting away. Because, I mean, we have breaches a week. We have issues a week. We have lost vast amounts of money per week going out the door in crime events that are all computer security, cyber security related. We need to look at them. Uh, some of these are happening in the cloud. So we will continue in the next uh, session on the next four where we're going to be talking about uh, account hijacking, clearly the insider side, uh, APT side, uh, and then data losses and what those mechanisms are uh, and their critical order severity. There are some of these that have been in the, in the scales before at different levels, and we'll talk about those four next podcast. That is correct, and uh, that's all for this episode. If you like what you heard, Subscribe at advancedpersistentsecurity.net. You can find the podcast at advancedpersistentsecurity.net slash feed slash podcast. We are on iTunes, Google Play Store, Spreaker, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, and YouTube, amongst others. If you like what you heard, give us a five-star review, love us, like us, and we'll see you next time. Until then, stay secure. Thank you for listening to the Advanced Persistent Security Podcast. Until next time, stay secure and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast.